Well, I wonder uh, where you are when we come to the issue of the resurrection. And I guess I reckon you probably fit into one of three camps. Um, You're utterly convinced by it, and you see it as something of incredible importance for the Christian faith. I think that might be um, that most of us here, um, um, as, as Redeemer Church family, that is what we would be, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, For some of you, you're intrigued enough to come and to join our meeting this morning and to see what all the fuss is about. Or for some of you, you are not convinced by the resurrection in any way, shape or form, and you see it as a pointless, indefensible doctrine. And so you're intrigued as to what I'm going to say and how on earth I'm going to defend it. Well, may I first say it's, it's great to have you here with us, meeting, watching online. Thank you. I really mean that. And I hope, as I prayed, that uh, um, whatever today holds, that these next few minutes would open up for you a totally different view on the resurrection. And I'm hoping as well that, that um, afterwards, for those of you who are on Zoom, um, you'll be able to meet in breakout groups afterwards. Those who are new, you'll be able to ask questions in your Zoom groups, discuss them, and then feel free to come back to me um, as we break out of those uh, groups. You can ask me questions as well. If you have questions online, feel free to, 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 to send them in. We might not be able to get them here live uh, today, but I can definitely interface with you as well. And we would love uh, to hear from you. And, and a good critical look of the resurrection is important. It is not something that we shy away from as Christians. We are not hiding behind anything. And in fact, that's where we're going to start today, because for many people, the resurrection is so implausible, it literally beggars belief. It begs the questions, why on earth do Christians believe it? Why on earth do we perpetuate this story? And that is a good question. Because before we go anywhere, we have to admit that for Christianity, the resurrection is supremely important. I've had conversations uh, with people who say that, oh, Sam, if only you dropped your fixation on the resurrection, I think I'd be a Christian. It would be more plausible, more people, I think, would feel that they could follow it. But the Bible doesn't let us do that. Um, In fact, the opposite is true. If we drop the resurrection, then Christianity isn't plausible at all. And the Bible itself says that that's the case. The Apostle Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection something truly remarkable. 1 Corinthians is just going to pop up <clears throat> on the screen in front of you. <clears throat> and this is, uh, th- th- this is Paul's uh, reminding us as Christians how important the resurrection is. He, said, he says this to um, the Corinthian church. For I delivered to you, Corinthian church, um, as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of writing, of course, though some have since fallen asleep. So, The Bible says, the Apostle Paul says that the resurrection is of first importance to the Christian faith, on a par with the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it really happened. Jesus was seen alive after having been killed and buried. It is of first importance to Christianity that this act of resurrection literally and physically happened. However, the Bible goes further than that. 
Paul continues in saying, and we're going to have the, the, the next part of this reading in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, not only is it of first importance, but, and as you see, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching as Christians is in vain, and your faith to whom you are speaking to um, is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Get this. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the resurrection did not happen, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is dead. And Christians, the Bible says, are fools. Christians are to be pitied above all others because we are living a very sad lie. The Bible itself says that. I wonder if you've ever considered that. So we cannot, as Christians, sidestep the issue of the resurrection. And if we cannot sidestep the issue, then we have to confront it. And very briefly this morning, that is what we're going to do together. We're going to confront the resurrection by taking a long, hard look at it in close detail. And in doing so, we're going to do two things <coughs> together. First, we are going to take a look at the evidence <coughs> for the resurrection by looking at three facts that the Bible gives us that we have to consider and then secondly, uh, we are going to look at the objections to the resurrection. Five common theories as to how the resurrection could have been faked. We're going to see how plausible they might be, how, the, how plausible they are. And we're going to try intelligently uh, deconstruct them so that we can have a good look at them. And after that, we're going to do some, we're going to come to some uh, conclusions. But to kick us off, let us uh, read the resurrection passage in Luke. Luke is the gospel which we have been following as a church family over the last weeks and months, and we'll read, um, we'll come effectively to the end of our, our series today. We're going to read from Luke 23, uh, verse 50 to 24, verse 12. For those of you who have Bibles, do keep that open as we go through this. It'll be helpful. It's also on the screen in front of you. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is written by uh, uh, Luke. It is an historical account compiled by eyewitness testimony by Luke himself, who was an historian living at the time of Jesus. And uh, you'll have it on front of you. And, and this is what he writes about the resurrection. Now, there was a man, <clears throat> this is after Jesus' death, named Joseph <clears throat> from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented uh, to the chief priest's decision and action to kill Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, <clears throat> they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found, this is the women, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And the women remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marvelling at what had happened. So that's what the Bible says about the resurrection. That's the historical text. But let's now examine that really carefully, along with all the other eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection, and look at our three facts that we have to consider as we look at this issue. And the first fact is the fact of the empty tomb. If you're taking notes, feel free to. This is our first fact, the empty tomb. Just as we've seen in Luke, the first thing that we read in the resurrection narrative and across actually all four Gospels is that the tomb is empty. And that may be obvious, but it is significant. Consider this. Jesus was a well-known man. Many people came to see him crucified. Many people wanted him dead. And so his burial site would have been known by all kinds of people. And in fact, as we read here, many people did know where Jesus was buried, principally because of this man that we read of called Joseph of Arimathea. Now, he wasn't a randomer. He is well identified in this passage, isn't he? He is significant. We read that he is the one that brought Jesus down from uh, the cross. He actually spoke to Pilate. He was in conversation with Pilate himself, who, who sentenced Jesus to death. And we're told that Joseph of Arimathea is a prominent member of the Jewish council. That is, he is in the higher echelons of, of, of Judaism, of the local ruling um, elite, Now, can you see how this eyewitness detail about this man is significant? For naming and and giving a title to the man who buried Jesus is dangerous if you're going to be lying about the resurrection. Anyone can go and speak to Joseph of Arimathea, the the leader of of the Jewish ruling council, Anyone could have asked him about anything that was written about him, about the rumours that would have swirled about Jesus being dead and buried, seen alive. Remember, these accounts are written very, very soon after Jesus had died. But what about the tomb being empty? Well, Jewish and Roman sources both testify to an empty tomb, not just the Bible, Matthew 28, 12 to 13 specifically states, in fact, that the chief priests, the the, the rulers of of, of Israel, they invented the story that the disciples stole the body. There would be no need for that story to be invented if this tomb had not been empty. Why go to all the bother to invent a story about Jesus' body having been taken if it wasn't very obvious that the tomb where Jesus was publicly laid in was empty? And note this, just as a side point... It is interesting to know that not one single historian in the first and second century AD wrote against the tomb being empty or mentioned the positive finding of the body. Not a single historian. 
Tom Anderson, who is a high-ranking U.S. lawyer and, and, and a historian, he says this. He says, let's assume that the written accounts of Christ's appearances to hundreds of people that we read in Luke today are false. Tom says, I I want to pose a question. With an event that is so well publicised, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record once for all time that he had seen Christ's dead body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. Not a single contemporary historian, of which there were many, denied the resurrection happening, denied that Jesus' tomb was empty, or said that they had seen a body. So it's fair to say and safe to say that that Jesus, a man who is well known, who did exist, we see that he existed from other sources outside of the Bible, that he really died, that he was really placed in this tomb that was well known, the location wasn't hidden by a man who was well known and publicly identified and verifiable, and the tomb three days after Jesus was, well, was laid, it was definitely empty. A fact, as we've seen, that uh, has not been undone by extra-biblical sources. So that's the first thing that we really have to consider. The tomb was empty and that that was known. Fact two, however, is, 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 is bringing us on to the apostles And it's worth looking at that. It's worth looking at what Jesus' followers did and spoke about after Jesus' resurrection. And this is important because this gives us a lot of detail about the veracity of Jesus rising again from the dead. So fact two is the apostles' transformation. It is recorded in the Gospels that while Jesus was on trial... The apostles, that is Jesus' disciples, his very closest friends, they all deserted Jesus out of absolute fear and terror. We read a little bit of that, yes, um, on Good Friday. We read that in Luke chapter 22, they all desert him. They're terrified. They thought they were going to die along with Jesus. They were convinced that their cause, the cause of their master, and the cause of their master to bring around a new kind of kingdom was totally dead. Yet we know uh, from the Bible and extra biblical sources as well that 10 out of the 11 apostles all died as martyrs believing and preaching that Christ rose again from the dead. So the question is this, what accounts for these men's transformation from, from men who were petrified for their lives into men who were only a few weeks later willing to die horrific deaths for their message. It must have been a truly compelling event to account for this. Let's take uh, Peter as an example, the most well-known of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. He was so afraid of the backlash of Jesus' death that he denied three times through curses that he ever knew Jesus. Again, we read that in Luke's account in chapter 22. Yet this very same man, only weeks later, went on to preach the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection with boldness in the centre of Jerusalem, and he was later crucified upside down for it. All the other apostles have very similar stories. His is just one. Now, can you see how this helps support the resurrection? It is impossible to think, isn't it? 
that these men in the face of certain death wouldn't have recanted their teaching about the resurrection of Jesus if it wasn't true. No one would ever die these kinds of deaths for something that you knew was a lie. Especially a lie that, that literally serves no purpose. In fact, no one would die these kind of deaths, even for something that might have contained an element of doubt about it. Are you sure Are you really willing to die for this? You know, you know the, the phrase, if you had a gun to my head? No, actually, probably not. Especially something as absurd as a man rising from the dead. It's just not worth it. The only thing that accounts for timid, weak, petrified men, turning them into bold, men bold enough to die at the hands of the Romans, was that the resurrection was true. And, and not just true, but hugely significant and worth dying for. If the resurrection did not happen, if there was any doubt that it wasn't real, timid human men would not go the lengths that they did in order to defend it. So the tomb that definitely had Jesus' body in was definitely empty, and the followers of Jesus were all, all of them, willing to die horrific deaths for their message concerning the resurrection. But there is one more fact that we need to consider before we move on, and that is the manner and the method of the apostles' preaching itself. Fact three, the apostles' preaching. <coughs> for what the apostles are preaching in regards to the resurrection and where they are preaching this message is enormously significant and impacts greatly on whether or not the resurrection is even remotely plausible. What is sometimes said of the resurrection and of the Bible in general, you might, said, uh, you might have said this uh, yourself, is that it is a legend and a myth that has been passed down by word of mouth over many years, slowly being tweaked and amended as it does so, whereby we eventually end up with the stories that we do with this great teacher who dies for mankind in a wonderful display of love and sacrifice and who raises again from the dead. Uh, legends often take root in foreign lands, don't they? Uh, centuries after the event, once upon a time in a land far, far away, that kind of thing. And discrediting or proving those legends is really difficult. In fact, it is impossible because the facts are just so hard to verify. There's no one to ask. There's no way you can go to the site where it all happened. However, this is simply not the case with the resurrection. For what the eyewitnesses tell us is that the apostles began preaching about the resurrection in Jerusalem, as we've just seen with Peter, the very city in which Jesus was crucified and was buried immediately after the event itself, within weeks of it happening. The apostles were talking about Jesus rising from the dead. Peter actually says in his sermon in, in Acts 2, he said, this Jesus who you saw recently crucified is the one who has risen. And that's a really dangerous thing to do, isn't it? If you are wanting to make up the story of the resurrection, as all the evidence was there for everyone to investigate, people could and would have, you guarantee it, would have walked to the tomb or would have spoken, as we said, to Joseph of Arimathea just a few miles away. If the resurrection were false, it would have been discredited very early on in the life of the church. Indeed, as we'll see in a minute, the, 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 the chief aim of both the Roman rulers and the Jewish rulers of Israel was to discredit the resurrection. 
it, 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 it was a, a really bad thing for them that Jesus rose from the, get, from the dead. They were desiring to prove that it was wrong. With the apostles preaching about the resurrection within weeks of Jesus' death, preaching to the very people who would have crucified him, would have seen the tomb, the, the leaders of Rome and the leaders of Jerusalem would have decried it as false from the very start, and they would have presented the body, you guarantee it. If you, if you didn't want to run the risk of being proved wrong, you would keep your teaching about the resurrection long till after everyone in living memory had died. And then you would start thinking about preaching it. It's much harder to prove wrong that way. There is no way Christianity survives when the teaching of the resurrection happens so soon after the event. It would have been publicly discredited in a heartbeat. You see, it is simply impossible to conceive of a religious sect whose very reason for existing was because their leader rose again from the dead could have had the global reach that it does. It just doesn't happen if the resurrection isn't true. So those are the facts we have to deal with. And, and, and feel free to come back to me on, on, on some of those if you want to. <clears throat> I'm at the end or in your Zoom groups as you talk to people in, 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 in the church or people who brought you. Um, and uh, feel free to ask me questions of those later, especially about stuff written in extra biblical sources. But let's park those facts for a moment and let's move on to our five discrediting theories. The five theories that people have come up with that sound plausible that could prove, disprove the resurrection once and for all. <clears throat> well, we're going to rattle through these fairly quickly. <clears throat> First theory one, we have what's called the wrong tomb theory. Now, let's go back to our Luke passage that we read before and, and this eyewitness account that we see. And, and, and what we discover in this passage is that is, is the women, isn't it, who find the tomb empty first. They find it also early in the morning. That's what we've just read. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Could it be <clears throat> that due to the emotion and the darkness of the early dawn light, Mary and later some of the other women go to the wrong tomb, they're, 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 they're temporarily excited about the fact that it's empty, they go back and tell the disciples, and thus creating the lie that we know today. Well, as we've seen already, there's a few problems with this. For starters, as we've seen in Luke, Peter follows the women back to the tomb, but Peter rose, as we read at the end of that passage. Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looked in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. He went home marveling at what had happened. In, in, in John and in Matthew's account, um, um, John runs after Peter. He, he, also sees, he also sees the tomb empty. It is inconceivable, isn't it, that Peter and later John would not have corrected the woman when they went to check, um, as we read only a, a few minutes later, especially considering that it would be now later in the morning, it would be a lot lighter. But of course, secondly, as we saw earlier, the, the, the tomb has been broadcast. Even the opponents of Jesus knew where it was. In fact, Matthew, as we'll see later, Matthew said that, that the Romans put guards outside the tomb. They would have known where it was. They would have proven that the tomb was wrong. Remember, it's in their interests to find the body. Furthermore, and before we move on, this is important. The, 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 the resurrection account, if you notice, contains a lot of eyewitness testimony from women. A lot. 
each account where we have the resurrection, it is all the women who carry the weight of testimony to the, to the men. In fact, as we read in Luke, um, um, the, the, the guys who hear from the women actually say they just didn't believe them because they thought their testimony wasn't worth listening to. And that's really interesting because in first century, in the first century, a woman's account was seen as definitively unreliable. It was often struck from official records to make cases of judgment uh, more watertight. So if you were to make up the resurrection there and then in that time, you just wouldn't put a women's eyewitness testimony anywhere near it. And yet here it is, front and centre, women talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that can only be because that is exactly how it happened. You wouldn't put it in there if you made it up. This is how it has been recorded. So that's our first theory. The second theory is called the hallucination theory. <clears throat> now, very simply, this theory states that uh, the resurrection occurs simply in the minds of the disciples, that, that, that the disciples were so overwhelmed with grief that there fell upon them such a hysteria in their hour of darkness and sadness that by one and all they began to feel the presence of the one that they'd so loved and so missed, that it was as if to them in that moment their Christ has been raised in their hearts. And that was the experience that the disciples then carry around uh, to the ends of the earth. Well, to make short shrift of this, the, the, this theory has been dismissed out of hand by psychologists, Christians, non-Christians alike. Um, as one clinical psychologist states, she says, hallucinations are individuals' occurrences. By their very nature, not only one, only one person can see a given hallucination at any one time. <clears throat> They certainly are not something which can be seen by a group of people by definition. Since a hallucination exists only in this subjective, personal sense, it is obvious that others cannot witness it, even if people are experiencing in the same room the same kind of emotions. She goes on to say, in fact, the problems with this thesis are so serious that these critics would have to go against much of the current psychiatric, psychological, and scientific data about the nature of the brain and hallucinations themselves. This would seem to place these approaches at odd with current scientific knowledge on this subject. We conclude that applying the hallucination and similar subjective theses to Jesus' resurrection appearances is severely mistaken across several disciplines and at many points, and she isn't a Christian. So that theory has been universally discredited. Again, don't forget, the disciples have to die for this stuff. They have to be really convinced that Jesus is rising again from the dead. And I, I mention that theory because it's actually gaining ground again in, in some circles, and it's important that we have those views on it. Theory three, the swoon theory. <clears throat> now, this theory states that Jesus didn't actually die, but simply swooned on the cross and then revived himself in the tomb and walked out of the tomb three days later. Now, again, there are many difficulties with this. For starters, the Romans who crucified Jesus were experts at killing. They would have known that he were dead or not without question. And the gospel writers, namely John, actually make the point that the Romans killing Jesus were to go back and check that he was actually dead. John goes on to recall that Jesus' side was split open with a spear with, with rushing uh, blood and water flowing out of his body, uh, proving that uh, the, the, the decomposition process had, had already uh, set in. But on top of this, with what was recorded as a weight of 80 pounds worth of oils and embalming fluid that would have blocked Jesus' pores as he's tightly bound by the women and by Joseph of Arimathea in normal ceremonial garb, 
he would have physically suffocated in the tomb, no question, notwithstanding the fact that he would have been incredibly weak from several hours of torture the day before. However, even if Jesus had somehow managed to crawl out of the tomb, then as, as David Strauss says, a German theologian, he says it wouldn't have helped the disciples' cause at all. Strauss says, consider this. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the tomb, who crept about weak and ill and gagging, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who would still in any case would have yielded to his sufferings and died eventually, could have possibly given the impression that he was the conqueror over death and the grave, the mighty prince of life, an impression which lay at the very heart of his followers' future ministry and one that they would have to later die for. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which Jesus had made upon them in life and in death. In other words, a weak Jesus who was going to die anyway eventually does not help the disciples in their quest to die for their faith and this teaching. Jesus is a weak leader and he is a fraud. He is not total resurrection power. So Jesus is definitely dead. There's no way he swooned. Even if he has, we still don't get Christianity as we know it today. But what about theory four? Theory four is the stolen body theory. And this says, well, what about the idea that the Jews and or Romans simply stole the body or removed it for safekeeping? Well, the big question to that is why? It is not in their interests to do that. Proponents of this view say that the Jews and the Romans could have done this because neither group wanted to make Jesus' tomb a pilgrimage site from where another following might have occurred. Well, in some respects, that kind of makes sense, but is immediately discredited. For starters, Roman guards were at the tomb. They were actually making it more of a deal than it needed to be. But again, and we've mentioned this before, that the Romans were desperate for Christianity to die. It undermined everything that they stood for in terms of the empire and Caesar being supreme. That's why Jesus died, in fact, because Pilate just didn't want an uprising against Rome. Any threat against that had to be vanquished. All the Romans had to do was to display the body and Christianity would have been finished. Similarly, for the Jewish leaders, they had a vested interest to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They despised Christianity. Jesus was crucified um, at their hands because he claimed to be God, that he was going to rise again from the dead. He was a blasphemer in their eyes. It is inconceivable to think that Eva Kemp would have not um, uh, uh, shown the body. They wouldn't have stolen it and kept it secret. Doing so would have exploded Christianity. Releasing the body would have, would have killed it. And so this links to our last theory this morning. How about theory five? The soldiers fall asleep and the disciples steal the body. In Matthew's account, we're told that Roman guards are sent to the tomb to stop the disciples from doing this. And the, the, the Jews and, and Romans were already aware of the power that Jesus had if his body had gone missing. And at first glance, this is the most plausible theory. If you wanted to perpetuate a powerful message of resurrection, what do you do? You would steal the body and then you would show the tomb to people and say, see, it's gone. Jesus lives. But again, this theory falls down on many levels, and it does so primarily, as I've mentioned before, 
uh, that Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that the chief priests tried to force this as a theory themselves at the time. He writes this. He said, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan upon hearing that the tomb was empty, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. It seems that the resurrection had, had occurred, had taken so much ground so quickly that plans that week were afoot to disprove it. This account in Matthew gives the resurrection real credibility. Why make up this theory about his disciples stealing the body if there was a body? The only way the Jewish leaders would concoct this story is because they had no explanation for it being missing. And they invent this story knowing that the disciples couldn't have stolen it. And the disciples couldn't have stolen it because of the following reasons. One, if the soldiers were asleep, how did they know that it was the disciples that had stolen the body? That's what they would have been faced with, that accusation. Secondly, how could the disciples sneak past the soldiers and then physically move what would have been a two-ton stone up a hill in absolute silence, again, in front of soldiers? Three, uh, because it was under Roman guard, the stone would have been sealed with a Roman seal. This was normal Roman practice. Breaking that would have meant immediate death sentence. Remember that the, the, the disciples are terrified and petrified at this point, to the point of denying Christ in public, there's no way they're going to have the guts to take on Rome. For the Roman guards would never have fallen asleep. They would have been killed by their superiors for doing so. They wouldn't even have lied about falling asleep. They would have been killed by their superiors for doing so. They wouldn't even have taken a bribe by Jewish leaders. They would have been crucified. Five, and finally, in the Gospel of John, we read in vivid detail that the grave clothes were found, and I quote, lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up neatly by itself, separated from the linen. There's, there's just not enough time for the disciples to sneak past the guards, to roll the, stu the stone away, to unwrap the body, and then to, to rewrap it in their wrappings and fold the headpiece neatly next to the linen. In a robbery, the men would have been desperate. They would have flung their garment, his garments to the ground and, and fled in fear of detection. In short, it is inconceivable, isn't it, that the disciples could have stolen the body of Jesus. So those are our, four, uh, those are our facts of the resurrection, and those are the five main enduring theories that people put out to discredit it. And, and I do appreciate that's a really quick whiz through some of that. But now I just want to draw some conclusions off the back of this and ask a question. For after we've looked at everything we've looked at today, I, I think it is fair to say that we have to seriously consider that Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason I've gone through some hard facts and evidences for the resurrection is to maybe get you at least to the point where you have to consider that Jesus rose again from the dead. And this then brings us to the question, so what? So what if it really did happen? Who cares? And that is a really important question this morning because, you know, some of you might get to this point in your thinking through the resurrection and say, okay, the resurrection, the evidence is, is fairly plausible. But, but ultimately, who cares? 
And I've had that put to me. I've, had, I've been in discussions where people have said, fine, okay, the resurrection happened, but actually I don't care. Well, this is really what I want to focus on as we close our time together. Because this is the crunch part of the reason why we are doing this this morning. This is, this is the whole point of Easter. Because if Jesus did raise from the dead, and I put it to you today that he really did, then the resurrection, the, the, the repercussions of the resurrection are enormous. And they are wonderful. They are also really scary. And you need to know what they are. You see, the reason the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is futile and we're all playing a a stupid, dangerous game is because that is true. And it's true because if the resurrection does not happen, then everything that Christ says and does in the Bible and everything that Christians stand for is a complete lie. And, Christ, and Jesus says some astonishing things in the Bible. Let's have a look at a few of them. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, Jesus says, I am the only way, not one of many ways. I am the only way. I, Jesus Christ, the only way in which you can get into heaven and receive eternal life after you die. <coughs> not religion. Not any other kind of religion, not secularism, not materialism, not agnosticism, not even moralism, not humanism. Nothing, says Jesus, gives you a full life or a life in eternity in heaven except for Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. That is an astonishingly arrogant claim, if that is not true. Jesus also says, I am the resurrection and the life. That means that Jesus is claiming that he will in the future rise from the dead so that he can give resurrection life and power to other people who believe in him. Another astonishing claim, and a really dangerous one if that is not true. For Jesus is then letting people think that they get an eternal life after death, but he's actually lying about it. That is incredibly vindictive, promising something that you know isn't true. But ultimately, Jesus says that he is God himself. He says he is the the, the son of man, a name for the Messiah King, God's chosen one from all the way back in the Old Testament. He calls himself the I am. That is the name that God gives himself when his people ask what they are to know him by all the way back in the Old Testament. We're going to see that in Exodus. Please do join us for that series. All of this is in Exodus. And ultimately, raising from the dead is something only God could possibly do, isn't it? It is impossible. That's the point of the resurrection. And if Jesus cannot do that, then he simply cannot be God. And that means the entirety of the Bible, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, everything that Jesus says about himself falls flat on his face. And Jesus is a really dangerous and arrogant fraud. And I really mean this when I say this. People don't believe me when I say this, but please believe me that this is true. If the resurrection isn't true, then I and everyone else in the Redeemer Church family and every Christian around the globe, we need to pack up our stuff and we need to leave the faith. I genuinely have better things to be doing with my time than trying to perpetuate a dangerous and arrogant lie. You see, I'm not a Christian because it makes me feel nice and good. There are, there are plenty of other things that make me feel nice and good that are a lot easier. 
I'm a Christian because it's true. For if the resurrection did happen, and it did, then Jesus was right. He is God, and the Bible is true. He is the resurrection and the life, and he is the only way to heaven. And so I need to make a decision about this. He is the only way that I can live a purposeful life with no fear of death. And that has extraordinary consequences for the whole of humankind. Because with the resurrection being real, after looking at all proof and reason and methodical historical investigation, then what the Bible also says about the human condition is real and true. And that is that we are a lost people who have run away from a loving God and enjoy living in rebellion towards him. And we deserve a life without him, without goodness, a, a life of, of, of death, a life of dying, a life of, 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 of being on our own. A life that we know is imperfect and difficult and full of suffering, a life that ultimately, says the Bible, and we know from, from, from what we see around us, that leads to death. And is that not the life that we have experienced in real shocking nearness over these weeks and months? We know that to be true, but we've really experienced it in real nearness, where we see a shaken world, undone by a tiny virus, disrupting the good lives that we have forged to lead. Everything I've worked towards, gone. Bringing unimaginable suffering and death in its wake. Well, the Bible says that as awful as that is, that is because we are a sinful people, that we're living in rebellion as a world, as a creation to a good God. The Bible says that the whole of creation is broken and it groans because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death. But with the resurrection happening, then what the Bible says about what Jesus has done about that horrible situation what the Bible says about the way of salvation for this fallen humanity, for this wretched creation, is also true. <clears throat> that a loving God sent his son to be fully human, to live the perfect life and to die the worst death. So that instead of us dying as, as we deserve, Jesus dies as a substitute in our place so that the wrath of the Father, instead of falling on us because we are rebels, falls on Jesus. It's everything we looked at on, on Good Friday. And we, though rebels to God, are now given life. While Jesus Christ, though perfect in front of God, takes our punishment and accepts death in our place. That is Good Friday. It is a Good Friday. That is where we see this astonishing exchange take place as Jesus dies on the cross where I should have died. But ultimately with the resurrection being true, then what the Bible says about the life that the Christian is promised is also true. That upon seeing our condition in front of a good God, upon recognizing that Jesus dies for me and makes it possible for me to know God again as he takes away my rebellion that cut me off from him, I am then allowed to ask Jesus to be my savior. And then I find that death is not the end. Finding out that the life of difficulty we know and experience now when we see in these times of unprecedented clarity is not all there is. There is a better life to come when we get to spend eternity with the God who does everything to get me back from death to life where he is. As the Bible says, there will be, where there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more mourning, no more evil, no more pain. 
For you see, the resurrection doesn't just point to Jesus as showing off that he can beat death. No, his rising from the dead means everyone can beat death. Everyone is given that same resurrection life through him to all those who call on his name to be saved. Jesus doesn't just die on the cross for me, but but beats death for me as well. And so now in the face of my earthly death, I know through the proof of the resurrection that I gain heavenly, eternal life. That is what is true if the resurrection did happen. And it really did. But as we draw to a close, it not only affects our future life, it also has extraordinary repercussions for our life now. We know we live in a world that is far from right. We know this Easter Sunday morning that we live in a world that is desperately broken, a world that is absolutely exhausted, a world that is mourning astonishing death never seen in peacetime, a world that is separated, isolated, locked down, And as such, the resurrection answers the question that there must be more to life than this. Easter has never been so functionally important to us in the West. And we look at Jesus rising from the dead and we can see that there there is a life beyond death, a life beyond our current struggles and our current sufferings and difficulties. And can you see how knowing that gives real life, real life, real purpose now? I do have something to live for. There is something to get up in the morning for. Work is not useless and futile that only ends in me accruing a lot of stuff and then disappearing when I die. All I get is oblivion. Humans can work knowing that there is real reward in real rest in a good God. That's what we've been looking at in Luke over these months as a church family. We're put to working for heavenly and eternal reward that I'm allowed to receive. What I do on earth really matters. I can take it with me. And so I see that God's plan for salvation means that my life um, has been um, thought through and through. It's been well thought through. There's been a path that has been given for me to follow. There's, there's real distinctiveness. I'm not aimlessly wandering through life, waiting for the end to happen with no hope. I'm given real purpose. The resurrection also gives humanity real dignity. It helps explains that as a human race, we are important to God. We are significant. We are loved. We are highly valued as we are made in God's image. And as God chooses to save us and, and, and get us back, even when we were, were so unlovable and so wretched, an incredible cost to himself. It helps us see that we are more than molecules and stardust, but highly designed beings made with individual brilliance and and difference and vitality and diversity and individuality that was designed and, and thought through and planned and perfected. The resurrection means that relationships really matter. Work really matters. Life really matters. And ultimately, it means there is something truly worth living for, that better life with Jesus himself. You still might say that this is really all pie in the sky when you die stuff. This is madness. And it is if the resurrection does not happen. But consider, by looking at this evidence, that it absolutely did, and what that means for you in the decision that you now need to make. In the light of the resurrection, you can choose to ignore him. 
And like any serious thinking adult, and like any serious historian or scientist, you have to be 100% sure that the resurrection did not happen if you're going to dismiss Jesus. And you need to read the Bible that talks about him in order for you to be able to make that decision. Please come and, 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 and email me if you want to do that. I'd love to be able to talk about that with you. So you can dismiss him. Or you can choose to come to him, come to Jesus, and get to know him as your saviour as the Jesus, the reigning king who is still alive and active and revealing himself to you through the Bible and through your Christian friends who brought you here, who want, to, want you to know him and to follow him and to be raised with him. That is what Easter is all about. The death and resurrection of Jesus for the saving for eternity of a lost humanity. And you have the opportunity this very morning to put your trust in Jesus and to repent to him, to give your life to him, to accept that he really died for you and that he really rose again for you, and to be willing to follow him into a purposeful life now and resurrected life in the future. That is what Christianity is all about. It is about Christ the sacrifice, God in flesh dying the death of the Passover lamb on a wooden cross in our place. It is about Christ as victor, Three days later, as he defeats the last enemy, that is death, and delivers Satan his most fatal blow. It is about Christ risen, clothed in immortality, the firstborn from the dead, as he rises to complete the work that he's already completed. It is about Christ as restorer and redeemer, as our hearts now beat with the blood of the saints, where he, we rise to rejoice in, in claiming the bride that he has won. And it is about Christ as fruit bearer, who like on the third day of creation, which produced seed and plants according to their kind that burst forth from the earth. So on the third day, Jesus, the seed of Abraham, rose bursting from the earth, producing fruit according to his kind, as we who trust in him will also like him burst forth from the earth into immortality, into love and light and life. It is about Christ as peacemaker, who now draws us into union with the Father from whom we are separated as we walk confidently into the throne room of God as there is now no separation, as in Christ a human is now represented in the very heart of the Godhead itself. But ultimately it is about Christ as reigning eternal king, the only one who can speak to the grave, where, O oh, death, is your sting, where, O oh hell, is your victory? That's what Christianity is all about. It is not about candles and robes and buildings. It is about the resurre resurrected Christ and the resurrection life that he offers to us all now.